0: Hi, you're listening to the Elia Mania podcast. I'm Asma Ibrahim, one of the co-directors of Elia Mania, and your host on this podcast. As a platform, we're focused on art, society, and culture, and so each month we'll be speaking to an exciting guest who will give us some insight into their particular field and their experience. And so, without further ado. Welcome to our very first episode. Today, our theme is poetry, and we are chatting with the very lovely Amina Atik.
1: Hi, guys. Um, I'm really excited to be joining you all. Um, my name is Amina Atik. um I go by the label, a Yemeni scout writer, performance artist, and activist, and I also facilitate with young people and women um, across the region in Northwest
0: that is an impressive sort of portfolio for your introduction and there's a there's a lot to kind of pick at there but i suppose we'll kind of start with um i think you've mentioned you have a love, of you had a love of storytelling from a young age and how is that sort of fed into what you do now well i i, I have only started
1: like sharing this but um i started only speaking from nearly the age of five to six it's not very clear because my mother said I always said a few words there and then, but I didn't speak. I was quite mute as a child, and this is why I'm probably dyslexic now because of um, slow learning development. However, as you can tell, I can now speak for the whole of England. (laughs) Um, But um, it did come, I think it sparked from from a very early age of um, observation. You know, I wasn't playing with a lot of children as my mother said I was very observant and I animals were my best friends especially kittens so my mum said that became a big part of my my personality my character um and I think honestly you know I'm very I am very philosophical cool as you can say I can't pronounce most of the words <laughs> but um I think it did spark from that age um because from the age of 1 to 4 you know it's the most important part of any child's development so um and if you look at what makes a power is being observant being patient being able to like mute yourself from the world be or but but yet being part of it um, and when I grew up, um, you know, I saw a lot of injustices in terms of Islamophobia, racism in the UK. And it became so apparent that I was very passionate about it because a lot of my friends, even though we didn't know what racism looked like, because as soon as you go into secondary school, this is when it began begins because you come out of your own communities. And I remember saying to my friends, it feels wrong. I don't know what the words mean but i know that it feels wrong and this is a 12 year old girl and i think this is the idea of where poetry began is this idea of writing to make things make sense um and yeah so that's where definitely where my kind of inspiration and activism in poetry began
0: that's so powerful you know writing things down to make them make sense and i think you know there's there's a lot of truth to that right when you've kind of got a muddle in your head when you put you know put pen to paper it really changes things and um I suppose it gives you a way to kind of logically work through them and try to understand them um so so at what age did you like start writing and and what were you writing were you writing poetry or per, or prose or did that sort of come later
1: um, I was writing mainly like um poetry but in in, in a very rhythmic way so people might call it rap <laughs> um but um because my brother he he also had the uh, Tourette's um at a young age um so when he starts rapping it just disappears and I'm like wow so I really enjoyed the rhythm so my brother would beatbox and I would like make Words to it, so our house is it's very a create a creative um household, um, but um, I would say I mean I've got a box in my bedroom where I've got poems, on scraps of paper, writing in a highlighter or a gel pen. Do you remember them gel pens with the glitter? And that's what I used to write my poems in. You know, any pen that I found it didn't have to be a black pen. It didn't have to be in you know really nice handwriting. I wrote in orange highlighters and I think looking back and this is why I tell people never throw your poetry never throw your writing because you're gonna honestly when I read them now I'm like wow like at the age of 13 I was talking about just you know bringing change to the world I thought I was going to be the next superhero but then when you grow up older you realize superheroes don't exist in that format <laughs> um, But you know it 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 just shows you the development in terms of how you how you think at a very young age and and where you see yourself today as a poet. um and and this is something that I really want to highlight. Poetry is not paper on on it's not pen on paper. It's not just that. Poetry is oral. you know, the first time I heard poetry was in a wedding which which was in a th- funeral, was for, which was from my grandma, you know, it was a freestyle something that was passionate and and you know we forget that poetry exists in our Yemeni household daily even in our language the way we express ourselves and you know and and this is the thing I tell people all the time being a poet does not mean paper you know pen on paper it means the way you are the way you observe your your character the way you treat others and it's it's a part of a way of a life you know as well as being a muslim woman it adds an element to that it's allowed me to be reflective it's allowed me to be patient and 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 you know it's a life it's it's saved me from a lot of things as well um and that's quite ambiguous but yeah
0: I mean yeah no absolutely there is there is so much more to it like you said than just uh, you know words on a page there is uh, it can you know it can change your life perspective the way you see things I suppose as well um, I I want to dig in a little bit more about um, what you said about the first uh, instance where you saw poetry um, and that being at a funeral um, and also like kind of it being a part of I suppose Yemeni heritage. How does that kind of so? How, how do you sort of connect poetry to your roots to to Yemen in a sense?
1: Yeah. Um. My mum always said at a very, very young age I always defended my Yemeni roots, but then I also would always criticise it.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um. Do you you know you have a love hate relationship with your you know with your Yemeni side? And I understood when I grew up older is that when, especially when I read Muhammad Azabadi's poetry, you know the radical love letters that he was writing to Yemen was was something that I was yearning for. And 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 I think because I spent five years of my you know of my you know early years in Yemen because I was born in Yemen, there's something special about spending the first years in in a place, and you know yeah and 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 all I know is that I kept writing love letters to Yemen but I did not know why and I think when the war broke out I started writing about what if it's gone what if I never see home again so Yemen became like uh you know personified it became a person it became like a love you know someone that I'm who's my lover and I won't be able to see him again. And that was the only best way I was able to express myself. And and yeah, so now I think, that, and I think it's the idea of living in the UK and because I'm very scouse in my accent and I'm very inter, 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 no, integrated with the community in Liverpool. But then when you're constantly reminded that you don't belong here and you need to go back home. You're in this, like, limbo, like, well, well, then, where do I belong? Because I'm not too Yemeni to be yemeni and I'm not too British to be British. And then it's like, but I love both of you. (laughs) I love my city. I love Yemen. Can't I have both? And it was only until I did my TEDx talk in Liverpool, I said, I said... I can have my homeland and my heartland and I do not need to sacrifice one for the other.
0: I listened to that TED talk by the way and I was really um, moved by it. You said you were talking about um, how you reached a point when you were finally comfortable with your identity and it took you a while to kind of come up with the words to describe yourself and it really kind of struck a chord with me because I think it's a sort of struggle that a lot of people do have that have come from like family, you know, second or third generation migrants, that sort of thing. It's a sort of like, I feel like the diaspora tends to have this problem, um, trying to work out where they fit. Um, And exactly like you said, you know, I, I never knew where to place myself. And for a while, it was like you know, I'm definitely not Yemeni enough, but I'm I do am I British really? Um, but I now I feel very comfortable in my identity. It's something really recent again. It, I think I'd say like it's been a year, yeah. a year and a half since I can like confidently call myself what I am and kind of like acknowledge yeah. that like midway gap. Um, so it, you know I'm you know it was really lovely to see you kind of you know expressing oh, no. that. Um, and how, how do you feel? Sorry.
1: Like How do you feel now that you've accepted that you're, you know, you can be in the midway, or you can be part of, you know, one like there, one like there, or maybe sometimes I feel so Yemeni. Sometimes it feels too British, and that's fine. So how do you how did you feel a year ago when you accepted that?
0: It's so empowering. It's so you know, it's so like you know, at that moment, it feels like no roads are sort of blocked to you anymore. You know, all doors are open. If you're you know, if you're confident enough to go in and say what you are, um, then people will just accept it. They'll take it. But if you don't even know, you know, where you stand, that's that I feel like gives more room for other people to kind of question that. So if you're very firm in your own identity and you know what you are and what you identify as, no one can really take that away from you. And I think that's something that um, has really changed my outlook on things and my perspective has um, made me want to be more kind of active in a sense sorry go ahead
1: no no definitely like you said it's empowering and I hope our listeners today you know it's something that you find yourself I can't we we can't tell you you know call yourself Yemeni British or Yemeni or Yemeni Scout or Yemeni Welsh or Yemeni Irish or Yemeni American you have to choose that like you have to like I am I accept that and I feel comfortable with that and um you know and when you do like I I don't I say yeah many scouts then British (laughs) and and there's something powerful about that because even in Liverpool with it's a very um segregated part of the country and people are very their own like it's such a socialist city, there's a lot of history, it's a very multi-diverse city, even though you know Islamophobia and racism does exist. Um so even being scouts in itself as a Muslim woman is a different type of identity. And um I absolutely love when I get on stage. Uh, especially in London, outside of Liverpool, and the first word that comes out of my mouth, I hear everyone, you're all right, and everyone's faces. They just can't believe there's a Scouse woman with a hijab in London. They just can't figure that out. And I think, you know what, this is what we need. We need to shock the audience. We need Because people don't actually know that we exist that Yemeni people exist. You've got Yemeni people in China, in Japan, in Korea. You've got Yemeni people in India. We exist all over the world. And I think it's time to put our map where it belongs. And it's time to put ourselves on the map where
0: we belong. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you know, I can imagine the sort of jaws dropping, that sort of reaction you get. Um, I mean, (laughs) even I for a moment kind of pause and was like, oh... I like this though because it's so exciting because I think I've only kind of in terms of like UK wise I've only ever met British sorry <laughs> London like Yemeni is based in London so I've never kind of heard the accent but it's you know it's lovely and it's wonderful that you're sort of bringing that voice with you you're sort of uh, you know like you said putting yourself on the map and showing that you do exist it's it's, it's brilliant and it's vibrant and there's absolutely you know a history of like Yemenis have been coming to the UK for a really long time probably earlier than I think most other Arabs actually um so it's it's absolutely I think you know we we kind of are quite like pushed under the rug a bit but it's really exciting to have voices like yours um sort of pushing forward that narrative um and we love we love having a Yemeni scouse um poet and and so uh, an activist and and whatever else um you identify as it's it's wonderful um so I guess I'd like to kind of also ask you know what what is your creative process how how do you kind of go from an idea to get you know and and getting it out there or or you know do you have a a particular you know step you know a sequence of steps you kind of go through while you refine your work I guess
1: yeah um, I mean every process is quite different Depending on like the commission or who I'm working for, but I've noticed that like a sequence of things that I tend to do in every in every creative process I do for any type of work, and I think most the first thing is 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 is, is allowing yourself to 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 be quite open because the thing is you don't want to be constantly writing the same things over over again and the thing is if i wrote a line today tomorrow it'll probably change because my mood my tone my perspective changes and i need to allow that i need to trust myself that that is going to happen and you know so the, the first thing that I, I i do is is basically look at the theme or the brief or or the thing that i want to talk about and i outline the storyline where does it begin and where does it end so I do any storyline, a storyboard, think it out, write it out, whatever you do from the beginning to the end. And I choose, I choose, I, I act because I believe poetry is like a photograph. It captures a moment. And that moment, you will never get it ever again. No matter how much you take that photograph, it's not that it won't be on the same, same, like any light can come in and change the mood of the, the photograph. So Poetry is a moment. So I choose a moment in that storyline because I Because I remind myself that I'm in control of that narrative. The reader does not have to know. It's not a, a novel. They don't have to know the beginning. They do not need, need to know the ending. Or they can only know the ending. It's just a moment. And what I do, I you know, I accept that this is going to be the moment. And I open that up like a, an onion, like a flower. I, I literally dig it up. You know what does it look like? What does it feel like? What do I see? What do I touch? So these are all your senses, and I plan that out. And for weeks, I start vomiting, and I use the word vomit because it's literally vomit. I vomit onto the page. I start, and you know, language is is beautiful, and when it comes into poetry, you choose the right word in its right place. And you know, honestly, that teaches you patience, and it teaches you about yourself because you're constantly, I don't know if you've ever seen anyone edit their poetry, they're constantly moving one word to another, one word to another, like, it's like, it teaches you time and space constantly, and yeah, so this is probably the the most, you know, most, like, important part of my creative process, is the fact that I allow myself to, to dig up as much as I can, you know, recently, I've just written a poem about, my mother plaiting my hair every single morning before school i knew that it was important to my mother but i didn't think it was more it was very it was it was important enough for me to write about it but honestly me writing about it has been i think it's been one of my most favorite poems i've written in terms of myself because it's a happy memory every single morning my mother would plait my hair sitting on the kitchen floor cross-legged and I'm biting into my sandwich. It was it was the the subtle the fact that we didn't talk, but my mum would hum her childhood you know lullaby music songs that she knew as a child. But we didn't communicate. But well, my mum used to communicate with me by brushing my hair. And when I wrote, because it was just an idea, but when I wrote about it, I understood that my mother, who was born in the village was then, came to the UK, was trying to, a way to connect to me in a very Yemeni way. And the only way was to spread it with olive oil, put cream on my hair, and then, you know, put the excess all over my face, on my neck to keep me moist in the winter days. And all these little memories started to come start to come back. And I thought, this is absolutely beautiful. And I need to start doing that more. It's actually unra- unravelling memories that i have not that are unheard of but yet so important and i remember 10 years after later after my mom was nurturing and i mean when i say nurturing was literally growing my hair every single day it was like i was a tree <laughs> you know and she would plait it so parallel to each other the two plaits, so perfect she couldn't make a mistake and then, until ten years later, she comes in and I've chopped my hair off. And I remember my mother literally heartbroken. And I chopped it off to a bob. It was oh so my long. Oh God! And I remember what a scandal. I know. And I remember since that day, my heart has not isn't it's not been well. And and the poem is called "When My Mother Danced with My Hair," and for that, my mother no longer dances. We no longer dance. So there's, there's a there's a there's a story in there about relationships about Yemeni mothers and daughters in the UK with a Yemeni British identity. And I think a lot of Yemeni women can I can really relate to that, especially when your mother emigrated from Yemen from a village to the UK and you're teaching each other. You know, I'm teaching my mother here political rights, and she's teaching me my Yemeni rights. Or <laughs> my Yemeni yeah. identity.
0: Yeah, it's it's really funny because that's reminding me of my grandmother. So my grandmother is from a village in like Thais, um, and she has this sort of obsession with having long hair. Um, so anytime I wanted to cut my hair, she'd kind of turn at me and frown, you know, disapprovingly, and and kind of try and convince me not to do it. And and I favour really short hair, so you know, my my hair's like, you know, chin length. And she hates it. She absolutely hates it. And I, you know, it seems to be, you know, a, a thing from the village, right? Um, so that's that's really sweet.
1: You no. Know, so I hope I, I know I didn't answer the question directly, but there's 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 no way there's no there's not a one way to teach poetry, and and like I said at the beginning, you the my creative process is being honest, being honest with myself, and allowing me to go to places that I don't want to go to. But then, when I write it um I, I I'm quite glad I did
0: um I think I heard you on the BBC talking about how the creative process or like the process of writing was sort of the most beautiful part um before you know reaching the finished product, I suppose when it's all sort of out there and gone, um which I think is a really lovely sentiment, I guess um. I'd I'd like to sort of understand a little bit more about how, um, you know, composing poetry has, you know, directly impacted you and changed you and the way you may see things or the way you may kind of interact with things um, and and how you see that also.
1: Yeah, um, (laughs) one thing I did learn about was people. That's the first thing. we are we are strange human beings. and <laughs> yeah, we're very. Um, you know we are. You know, and with poetry, you become like an expert in behaviour <laughs> because you're constantly observing your surroundings and conversations, and you do it. You don't do it deliberately; it just comes naturally. Um, and I think one thing I did learn was that life is is it's all a moment. everything we we have is is a moment and 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 bringing it back to my yemeni British British identity, I can't lose a moment where I do not celebrate my Yemeni side. I cannot lose that anymore. I've lost already my Arabic um because it's so broken that sometimes you know i I am quite upset about it. How can my first language be Arabic, but yet now it's been diluted and English is now my first language? It it just it just breaks my heart, and I'm not trying to be very dramatic here, but it does it absolutely breaks my heart because I feel like now that I'm you know I'm I'm a woman and I'm, I'm I finished university and I'm trying to connect with my art form with elders and you know community activists. Some of them only speak Arabic, and I want to know more about my home country. I want to read the language. I want to read the poets of Yemen, but I can't because I don't read Arabic in the same way that I should have. And and it frustrates me. But, however, I've said to myself, even though there might be this might be a barrier, I will not allow it to take anything away from me ever again. So I will do everything I can to, to gain that, that, you know, to to gain as much knowledge as I can about my Yemeni heritage and culture and to educate myself so I can teach others. And the best way is through, one of the best ways that I can do it is through poetry. So one thing I did, I think, learn is that poetry is not to entertain. It's not to entertain an audience, it's to educate. And as soon as, you, as a poet accepts that they are there to educate, there's belief There's belief and value in the work that you do. You know, Mohamed Zubairi, who's an orphan, a poor man, started a revolution without any tribesmen. A revolution to change Yemen because... And he died for love. He died for the love for his home country. And to see see what Yemen looks like now and how we're politically so divided, it it just saddens me that a poet who wrote radical love letters to his home country and his pen was his sword and he died for love, for his home. And yet, you know, 60, 70 years later, we're politically divided. You know, and I I hope that, you know, I don't just take poetry to an audience. I take poetry, not just of mine, but those before me and after me, to, to places like schools, education, to people who don't like poetry um, because they think it's something that they don't understand. We understand it. poetry is part of our lives. It's, 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 it's you know, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And um, yeah, so I think this is probably my, where I probably wanna head towards is bringing um, poetry into cultural and educational spaces
0: that's that's really exciting um i think what you said about struggling with language is definitely i think um a struggle that many people relate to um when you end up you know spending all your time or growing up uh, in the west or wherever else it is um it's really easy to lose the arabic um but like you said the important thing is to not let it be a barrier Um, and i think especially in the current times when um when it's it's easier to communicate with people when you know you can find ways around it um it doesn't have to stop you um and you definitely, definitely. haven't uh, i guess you've you've touched on mohammed Zubayri already but i wanted to ask are there any other poets that you sort of have been inspired by or have kind of looked to um or admired in the past yemeni or not yeah i mean
1: oh there's 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 a lot of poets. Um, I Every poet inspires me in a very, very different way. Like, even British poets, you know, like Simon Armitage, older poets like, you know, Carol Duffy or T.S. Eliot, all of them have played a, a part of in me, in, even though sometimes I read the poetry and I think I can't really relate to it because it's, it's part of their British identity. But, yeah... I I can because I'm also British, <laughs> you know, and I've been part of this society. So, honestly, the, and this is the thing, um, and I'm going to be quite honest. Um, Growing up, you know, in school, reading poetry, you know, uh, in poetry, especially in GCSE or A-level, you either had, you know, black American or black British poets. And then you had just a minority of like Asian poets. And then the rest were white, British, white American. Um so really I, I didn't know where to put myself because I'm not Asian, I'm not black, I'm not, you know, English or white. So where do I place myself in that? And and it was only until I read Mohammed Zubiri I was like, oh my god, like this is this is the poetry that I want to read every day. Um so yeah, so there's so many that I can list, but I think Muhammad Azubairi has definitely played. Because the thing is, reading other poets' work should have an impact on your work. And I think all the poets that I've read have always had an impact, a little there and a little there. But I think Muhammad Azubairi has changed me as a person as well and has changed my work 360 degrees. I wouldn't have been able to write about my mother and um, mother You know the poem my mother danced with my hair, and had the confidence to write that because and to value it enough that it can become a poem. A poem. It was only until I read um, Mohammed Azubayu's poem because You know he made me, like, you know, appreciate my Yemeni identity, and I think reading all the poets in GCSE and A levels and those around me, um, they just didn't fully do it. I just couldn't relate a hundred percent. Even though the work is amazing and very talented and a lot of my friends are very successful poets. Um, there's nothing like reading someone from from your home country, like I said before, who's writing radical
0: love letters to the home that you yearn for. I think you have thoroughly convinced anyone that is listening that they should be reading muhammad Azubayri like oh. right now um <laughs> and especially
1: time and current like it will i hope that we get to reread his work because i think it will it will i just hope so i mean i, I do live in this poetry bubble world sometimes but i hope that it you know, if we bring his poetry to the table, it might actually bring Yemen to peace. I mean, I don't know if I'm being too ambiguous here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a bold statement for sure. Um, or
1: ambitious, sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, worth considering, you know, the, the power of literature, the power of words um, and poetry, um, you know, they've, they've done amazing and great things before. So why, you know, why not here as well? I've just heard that you've done a couple of other things um, which I thought we could briefly touch on Um, you you co-wrote a play I believe what was that like
1: so it was it was kind of like an experimental kind of play because it was with Ice and Fire Theatre who were based in London and um, they write you know a lot of their work is on like radical theatre writing about theatre like shows that don't we don't really get in the mainstream spaces so when they approached me they um when Christine the director approached me she wanted to find a female Yemeni writer and you know every single day she'd ask me certain questions about you know life growing up as a Yemeni and obviously this was 2018 I I haven't yet really understood my Yemeni scouts or Yemeni British identity I was still writing to an audience I didn't want to write to or I you know, I was still didn't really understand myself, really, as a writer. So I was really answering the questions very cliché. And Christine was part of, of my creative development, I will say, and my creative process, because she allowed me to answer questions that no one would really an- ask me. And when we got halfway through the development, um, because it was experimental, we didn't know what it looked like. and I And I love stuff like this, because it allows you to do things that, you know... Because six months later, I'm literally, you know, rehearsing to be an actor. And I'm like, oh, my God, I've never, I've never acted on a stage. <laughs> so, but it allowed me to do that. Um, and we'll get to that. So halfway through the process, I suggested to Christine, I said, why don't we get a writer from Yemen who can become part of the play? And, you know, Christine obviously was open to that because it was experimental between me and her. And um, we contacted a few writers. And because it was at a time of war, it also made me understand what writers and artists were going through and the people in the creative industry in Yemen, how they've lost their jobs. They were the first to lose their jobs. And I remember one guy said to me, who was the videographer for the comedy show, he said to me, Amina, nobody watches comedy shows in war. And that struck me because I was like, I learned throughout the development of the play, I learned also about the war in Yemen and the impact it had on individual people's lives, on people's lives individually. And so we kept losing a lot of writers. And and even though as frustrating that was because we had a deadline, it also showed me the reality of what war does. And then until once, um, a guy messaged me on Facebook and on my profile picture, I have a mic on my, and it looks like I'm singing, but I'm not. And he messaged me, he said, hi, are you a singer? I said, no, I'm a poet. And then he responds, well, I don't like poetry. And Khalid then became our writer because we had this very interesting conversation and we used our Facebook messages as act, as the dialogue for the theatre show. So the theatre show opens up oh, with wow. Hi, are you a singer? So this idea was that a Yemeni British woman is, is, is in contact with a Yemeni British boy in, in Aden and they're talking about Yemen identity and war. And I'm showing him my uk and he's showing me his yemen but we both want it he wants britain i want Yemen because he wants a hopeful and future and you know and i want and i'm yearning back to to go back to yemen so it was a it was like a romeo juliet but without the love story (laughs) um it was it was honestly it was a really nice little storyline i really enjoyed it but you know what um the thing that um I can say is that Khalid, who's a great friend of mine now, he now has a YouTube channel. He's very out there now. He talks about his own story. He educates people. He's got his own organization where he teaches English. Theatre is not about just like I said. It's not to entertain. It's about changing people's lives. And as much as it changed my life, I definitely think it had a, it played a big impact in Khalid's life. Because I saw the confidence after. Um, and and um but you know what, that's him as well. That's not our doing. That's his doing, his commitment, his passion. Um, so Khalid, if you're listening to this, <laughs> he's he's amazing. He's really, really he's a good guy. And I hope you interview him one day on this podcast. Um, he's an interesting young man
0: that's that's such a lovely lovely story um i kind of wish i was able to see this play i guess it's not available (laughs) on youtube or anything is it there's a
1: trailer for um that is there oh and we served a coffee with kak at the beginning so you you met the the actors because we wanted to make it like you know like even in yemen you know what what would Yemeni people do hospitality so when people were coming in me and the actor who played Khalid, he would we. I had the Shahi, and he would give out the cake.
0: Um, <laughs> That's so lovely. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I you know I feel gutted that I've missed that. Um, but you know, it's so exciting to see, see stuff like that because you know when else will you find a play about Yemen? Um, you know, I'd, I'd buy a ticket for that straight away because I'd be like, this is so exciting. Um, no one ever talks about Yemen. Um, so that, you know, it's it's wonderful that that happened. Um, and I hope yeah. we see more of that. Can I plug? Um,
1: well, I'm actually writing a new show called Broken Biscuits. And it's about uh, my grandmother's Yemeni-British living room in 1970s. And I'm actually re- I'm visiting that, going back in time, to basically untangle what it means to be Britain, British. So it's about Yemen, it's about identity, it's about everything we spoke about right now. But it's, it's basically, and we're actually producing a short film. So, I've um, and the short film will be interviewing Yemeni news agents in Liverpool. We're hopefully trying to get about 50 portraits of Yemeni news agents to value the fact that Yemeni people, when they came to the UK, they brought social enterprise you know, onto the streets, you know. You got your bread and your milk at 6am when everything else was closed. They came at a post-war era when people were rationing, but Yemeni people brought your food and your milk at a very, you know, a very hospitable price and a generous price because they know what it's like to share food. And this is why it's called Broken Biscuits because my granddad sold Broken Biscuits in 1967. And the idea was that, it was rationed you know so instead of buying a big box of biscuits you're getting a mix of different biscuits for a very shorter for a, a smaller price um and yeah and I think that is Yemeni <laughs> that's such a Yemeni thing
0: <laughs> so when, when is it um supposed to be sort of available
1: so I was meant to do a second performance of it in November, but because of COVID, <laughs> I won't be able to. So I'm producing a short film instead. However, next year, January, we will be doing three workshops with the Yemeni community, um to kind of get them to write their own stories and about their own memories, and then hopefully do a do go into rehearsals and then do a showcase in London at the end of January. So,
0: so that's uh, just to clarify, 2021
1: yeah 2021 um but it's just a small showcase um obviously with COVID everything's been delayed so Mm. we're gonna take a moment and we're in this together aren't we
0: yeah no absolutely um well it's really exciting that you know there's there's more to look forward to um and and, you know feel free to plug as much as you like um yeah I, I can't wait to see that when it comes out um, I guess, like, we are slowly coming to a close. Um, one thing I wanted to ask was, would you be willing to recite one of your pieces for our audience?
1: Oh, gosh, yes. Um, I will do one that I just finished recently. Um, so this is called Backbencher, and um, this uh, this is about young Yemeni men, who came in the 80s or who were brought up in the 80s at a time when football became their hope and their glory <laughs> um, and this is basically my father um, but um there's definitely something about identity here um, so this is called a backbencher i saw my father cry for the first time he gave birth to the city to remind me home is sketched across his belly. The sirens did not stop yelling and he kept on running. And this will never be his game to play. And my father spat the city out of his mouth, chanting her anthem in his foreign tongue. The red flag is the only song he knew. And I saw my father cry for the first time. He scruffled his hands in the mud to find the secret between our borders is the difference between this city and men in suits who suck their thumbs and fiddle their fingers in our pockets. And young men like my father, black curly hair, brown eyes, mocker skin, curled their tongues in their political lingo. They sat on back benches and learnt to watch from a distance. And I saw my father cry for the first time. He cradled this city in his arms, waiting to be loved. But all he knew that this glory does not belong to people like him. And the red flag is the only song he knew when And when my father died of a heartbreak, he told me to never give up. For no first love kills with a dagger. Thank you. <laughs>
0: that was lovely. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um I guess uh was you know this is the moment if you wanted to share anything else with the audience you can kind of go for it. Um I just want to say
1: especially to the Yemeni yeah, um artists and creatives, the beginners, professionals, please let's collaborate. Um I see now that I'm on social media a lot more and I see I've I've seen a lot of yeah many people but I feel like we're doing everything alone. Let's join forces despite our political differences or our cultural ideas. Let's create art together. You know, we do exist and we've existed long way before many many other you know cultural practices or culture. You know, heri- you know our heritage just is, is so old, um and. Yet, we're, we're quite invisible. So please, let's become visible. Let's represent our identity, our cultural identity. Let's represent our art, our voices. And um, let's challenge each other and inspire each other. Um, let's go to places that we've never been before. Let's revisit them. And um, But the main thing I think I just want to say is that let's do it together. Yemen needs us um and and when we're segregated in, in any form, it will not help us or Yemen. and remember, this is also not just our future but the future of our of our children and our grandchildren who will who will also carry that Yemeni identity.
0: What a beautiful message. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of our first episode. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for future episodes. Until then, ma salama.